0: I'm Jack Rustin, welcome to the Rustin's Boneyard podcast. We're talking about real food, traditional cooking, nutrition, health, and exercise. We're asking whether a more primal approach to life brings us further in line with the biology evolution has given us. We'll be exploring some of these topics with expert guests from the worlds of clinical practice and research. I'm not qualified to give any sort of medical or dietary advice, and nothing in this material should be considered as such. The opinions expressed here are for the purposes of discussion only. Please consult a qualified medical professional before undertaking changes to your diet. And now, on with the show. Perhaps the most prevalent question of all in this whole food, wellness, diet, lifestyle space is how do I lose weight? And it's a question worth asking. Not just because many of us want to look lean, want to rebalance our body composition a bit, but despite what some people might try to claim, it's extremely difficult to be both obese and healthy. Obesity, which is now nothing short of an epidemic in the developed world, correlates so tightly with serious chronic disease that there's really nobody in the medical community, clinicians or researchers, who would argue that it's healthy to be obese. And we do now understand some of the direct mechanistic links between the quantity, location and level of inflammation of the fat in our bodies and the manifestation of a number of serious diseases. And this is particularly relevant right now because one such disease in which we know obesity is a huge factor and how it is a factor is Covid. Metabolic syndrome, which is characterised by obesity, particularly visceral adiposity, high blood pressure and high fasted blood sugar and triglycerides is the most significant risk factor for severe COVID other than age, and you could argue that increasing age is to some degree a proxy for poor metabolic health. Now, I'm not trying to get involved in some sort of fat shaming here, far from it. I'm actually gonna be talking about why long-term fat loss can be impossible for many people, and why it is so wrong to draw the conclusion that people lack commitment or willpower when they struggle to lose weight. It's not a character flaw, it's not laziness or a lack of grit, drive and determination. But the fact does remain that we cannot tackle obesity by simply reframing it, by saying that it's perfectly healthy, that people come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, or describing ourselves as having a bit of a dad bod as if it's an advantage. It may well be attractive to some people and I'm not here to argue that being fat can't be sexy, but it isn't healthy. Throughout the Covid pandemic, we've all had to take on the responsibility of isolating in order to prevent our healthcare services from becoming overrun with unmanageable numbers of simultaneous severe cases. As we begin to unlock our society to get back to normal, we have to accept that a responsibility now exists to do the same by addressing our health. It's foolish to assume that there will always be a highly effective vaccine as COVID evolves. But looking beyond COVID, that underlying metabolic disease that's made the virus so dangerous for some people is an epidemic all of its own. The cost, the pressure on our healthcare system of treating the vast numbers of people with pre-diabetes, diabetes and all the downstream effects of those diseases, cardiovascular disease, many cancers, dementia and Alzheimer's is simply staggering. If we're genuinely concerned about protecting these services such that when we need them they're there for us over the coming decades, there's one thing we absolutely must do, it is to address the metabolic health of our populations. And while metabolic disease isn't exclusive to those with obvious obesity, it's fair to say that addressing the obesity epidemic is the defining step in tackling these issues. Now when we talk about weight loss what we're really talking about is fat loss Lean body mass plays a critical role in our health. It acts as a metabolic soak. Our muscle absorbs glucose from our blood, storing it as glycogen. It's metabolically expensive. It raises our metabolic rate which increases our energy expenditure and of course it keeps us physically strong, capable and robust. Furthermore, it obviously has a significant impact on the way we look, so what we're really asking is not how do I lose weight but how do I lose fat? Firstly, it might be worth flipping that question around and asking, why do we gain fat? Well, there are many factors at play, the means by which we've evolved our biology, the design, composition, and availability of our foods, the function and dysfunction of our hormones, and the interplay between all these things. But the simple answer is that we take in more energy than we need, and this is the basis of the classic calories in, calories out, energy balance model, whereby our dietary intake of energy is balanced against the calories we burn. That is fundamentally correct. There are countless studies that show that when we maintain a calorie deficit, we shrink. But as always, it's not quite that simple. There's considerable nuance around what drives our hunger, the food we take in, the ways and rate at which we expend our energy, and the way the two sides of that balancing act affect each other both acutely and chronically. Over the coming episodes, we'll look at the factors that affect our ability to gain and lose fat and suggest some strategies for turning those to our advantage. So what we're told is to eat less and move more. We're told to eat a balanced diet and to count calories. what happens is that we go on a diet for a few weeks, strictly following the regime, tracking our calories, struggling out for a jog every other day, and we do lose weight. But the moment we stop dieting, all the weight comes straight back on, sometimes even a bit more, and at a frightening rate. We feel like we failed. We go on another diet, struggling through the misery of significant calorie restriction, the tedium of weighing and tracking our food, finding that we need to eat even less than we did last time, and exactly the same thing happens. And some of us go repeatedly around this cycle, each time cementing the realization that it's all pointless, a battle we can't sustain and we'll never win. We can't tolerate endless hunger or the rigmarole of weighing and measuring our food. We wonder why we're so weak-willed, why we're so lazy and feeble, eventually convincing ourselves that it's our genetics, or our age, or simply that it's just normal for human beings to gain weight over time, that it's unavoidable. And this is not true. The holy grail is a situation where we can eat when we're hungry and stop when we feel full, maintain a healthy body fat percentage in the process, the way human beings have done for millions of years. To most of us in the developed world, that seems like a pipe dream. We can use the simple calories in calories out model to lose fat and maintain that loss indefinitely but only if we're prepared to endlessly weigh and track our food and tolerate that constant feeling of restriction. Something which very very few people can do in the long run. We all know what it's like when we've told ourselves that we've hit our calorie allowance for the day and there's no way we're going to give in and eat another bite of anything yet somehow half an hour later we find ourselves picking absent-mindedly at something from the fridge. And sometimes we go to great lengths to change the goalposts to allow this. Well, if I eat less tomorrow then it's okay, or I deserve it because X or Y stressful thing happened. And sometimes it's almost as if we just forgot and began eating on autopilot, mind blank, without realizing we were doing it. It's not that we're weak willed, the deck is stacked against us in various ways. Over millions of years, Evolution has selected for human beings who prioritised food. If you were the person who was obsessed with eating, preoccupied with finding food, who would eat as much as you physically could at every opportunity, you were far more likely to survive than someone who was prepared to take it or leave it. And what this seeded in our biology was a dopaminergic response to eating. Food was and is addictive. It lights up the reward centre in our brains. We all know that feeling when we've got a piece of chocolate in the cupboard or a cheesecake in the fridge that we've been promising ourselves at the end of the day, and when we finally sit down and tuck in, we feel this flood of well-being, even if we know that we shouldn't be eating that food because it's not consistent with our goal of losing excess weight, which might be the greatest source of unhappiness in our lives. That rush of warmth and comfort is the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. It's the same rush that we get from drugs like cocaine. And we can see this in kids because they're so demonstrative with their emotions. If they're a bit grumpy or upset and we give them a big piece of chocolate, within a few moments they're glowing and happy and laughing. They start jabbering on about all the things they're pleased or excited about. It's not a question of energy. They might have just had a meal. It's that rush of dopamine that's making them feel great. Now. In talking about this, we have to acknowledge that there's not only a biological, but a psychological component to the way we eat. We may be using food as a way to control our emotions, and at a certain point, our eating can become disordered. And this is an extremely complex issue. It's beyond the scope of this material and certainly beyond my pay grade. If you have an eating disorder, it is important to get professional help. And if it's something people are interested in, I can look at finding someone who can come and talk to us about it. Now by contrast the feeling of hunger is intolerable. It speaks to a primal part of us and it says if you don't eat something you're in deep shit and you could die. Remaining hungry when there's food available to us goes against the very fibre of our being and it's not just a feeling we don't much like. When we restrict our calories our bodies begin a defensive process of down regulation. We conserve energy. And once that primal part of our brain gets the idea that food is scarce, our metabolism slows, we begin to conserve our fat stores and reduce our outgoings. We downregulate the production of certain hormones, particularly sex and thyroid hormones. Our brain wants us to rest, save our energy, stop producing any more hungry mouths to feed and wait until there's more food available. And it's this process that makes dieting so hard and regaining weight so easy. When we begin to increase our intake again, not only are we extremely hungry, but we're now operating at a lower basal metabolic rate. We need fewer calories. It also stands to reason that there was an advantage for those of us who were able to lay down fat quickly and easily when food was available. This selective pressure resulted in the loss of the uricase enzyme, the role of which was to break down uric acid in the body. And while primates are still able to do this, humans are not, and that uric acid allows us to more easily lay down fat from the fructose found in ripe fruit. And the thinking is that this is what allowed us to thrive as we moved north out of Africa and into Europe. We'd have had less frequent access to fruit and would have benefited from being able to more readily lay down fat during those short periods of the year when it was available. It's obvious why those of us who exhibited such a strong affinity for eating and such a visceral aversion to hunger would have thrived over the past few million years. But today, those traits are no longer an advantage. In the developed world, at least, where there's no winter coming, no scarcity to speak of, they are a significant disadvantage, a threat to our health. So why have we not evolved further to select for those who are rather more ambivalent about food? Well, because there's little to no evolutionary pressure in our modern environment. However much a person overeats, they will almost always survive to reproductive age. And while metabolic disease and insulin resistance do cause diseases which interfere with fertility, in fact we now have somewhat of an infertility epidemic, we have the medical means at our disposal to help couples conceive where otherwise they might not be able to. In other words, we're using technology to sidestep any break that evolution might otherwise have put on the proliferation of those particular traits. So if you're that person who's never seemed to feel full, never been able to stop eating, to put that half-finished packet back in the cupboard, it's not because you're weak-willed, it's because you're hardwired to eat as much as possible. It's that compulsion to eat that got our species to the dominant position it enjoys today. In the next episode we'll look at how our food itself can drive us to overeat. In part one we mentioned some behavioural traits that kept us alive historically but which in the modern world are hazardous to our health. Our propensity to overeat when food was available. And there are people all too willing to exploit those traits for financial gain. Our addictive relationship with food is well understood by the food industry. A major turning point came in 1985, when tobacco companies realised that the writing was on the wall for smoking, that it was going to be increasingly legislated against. R.J. Reynolds bought Nabisco and Philip Morris went on to become the world's largest food company absorbing general foods and craft. The idea behind this move was that processed food would become the new replacement for cigarettes. Their first order of business was to bring to bear all their extensive expertise in the development and marketing of addiction. A big part of that process was food engineering, the science of making food more compulsive, more addictive. Research led to particular combinations of salt, fat and sugar designed to elicit the greatest dopamine response and the lowest levels of satiety. They learn to manipulate both flavour and texture to those ends. A product might have large salt crystals on its surface, opening up the taste buds immediately, followed by the melting texture of a vegetable oil and the enhanced sweetness of high fructose corn syrup to hit what they refer to as the bliss point. Food engineers developed combinations that allowed them to increase sugar, while simultaneously using salt and other compounds to reduce nausea, to suppress the hormonal satiety signalling that would normally prevent a person from over-consuming energy. Competition eaters used these same tricks, adding salt to suppress satiety when faced with enormous quantities of sugar and fat. Manufacturers manipulate every aspect of these foods, even down to the quantities they're packaged in and the wording they use to drive the consumer to eat more. You can demonstrate the effect of food engineering for yourself, calculate the amount of sugar in a packet of chocolate biscuits, something most of us can easily eat until they're all gone, and then try to eat that same quantity of table sugar. You can't do it, and that's no surprise. The first brand I looked at had 17 spoons of sugar and some 1300 calories in a packet. Yet because these products are engineered to suppress our satiety, we're able to keep eating. In his harrowing 2013 book, Salt, Fat, Sugar, investigative journalist Michael Moss exposed the secretive development of these practices and the corporate decisions behind them. What we notice about these engineered foods is that they mimic characteristics of certain whole foods which we evolved to seek particularly fervently. The primary example of this is breast milk. Breast milk is the only naturally occurring food that contains significant amounts of both fat and sugar in combination. Most whole foods contain one or the other. It's critical to our survival as a species that a young human being takes on as much milk in as short a space of time as possible. A baby is incredibly vulnerable in the wild and the faster they grow the more likely they are to survive. We couldn't afford to find breast milk too satisfying. And this may explain why we have a near limitless appetite for combinations of fat and sugar, and why adding in a dairy component, which is compulsive on its own, can make a food product irresistible. Another example of this whole food hyperpalatability pertains to the sweet taste of fructose found in ripe fruit. Table sugar is a combination of glucose and fructose in equal quantities, but the glucose is actually not sweet tasting. If you taste pure glucose powder, it's surprisingly bland. It's the fructose that provides us with that satisfying addictive sweetness, and it can affect our behavior, making us less inhibited, more impulsive. It actively shatters our resolve to resist temptation, and this would have helped us to seriously overdo the fruit consumption, to fatten ourselves up for the coming winter. People that exhibited this hedonistic response to sweet tasting foods would have been more likely to survive to reproductive age, to pass on that trait to future generations. Today, food engineers take advantage of that by concentrating fructose into ingredients like high fructose corn syrup. This allows them to make a product intensely sweet and so more dopaminergic more compulsive, but without any of the nutrients that fresh fruit contains. We even have the technology to selectively breed and to modify fresh fruit to contain more fructose. We can effectively make a hyperpalatable version of a whole food that's already naturally moorish. It's not just sweet foods that elicit this response. Early humans met the vast majority of their nutritional needs with meat. The analysis of human remains is exceptionally compelling in this respect, with nitrogen isotope data showing us to be high trophic carnivores. The most pivotal step in our evolution was the development of our hunting and cooking skills. We were able to fuel the development of metabolically expensive brains by hunting megafauna, big fatty ruminant animals like mammoth and mastodon. We retain a primal association between the taste of meat, particularly seared meat, and the intake of essential nutrients. Food engineers take advantage of that umami flavour to make a product more compulsive. They can make something taste nutritious while never really satisfying us. In the same way that an artificial sweetener tastes like energy but never provides any, these flavourings imply a nutrient content that isn't there. They're artificial meatners. A classic example of this is the Dorito corn chip. Of course, historically, this dopaminergic relationship with hyperpalatable foods was an advantage. It drove us to gain fat when resources were plentiful, storing it up to sustain us over leaner times. But in the modern developed world, there are no leaner times. Hyperpalatable foods are also hyper available. Processed food products are cheap to make, cheap to buy and have a long shelf life that represents a disconnect with the natural restrictions imposed by seasonality. And again it's not just processed food, we can fly fresh fruit halfway across the world in a day, making foods that would once only have been available for a few short weeks at the end of summer an option every day of the year. We can eat fresh mangoes on Christmas day in Alaska. We can manipulate the foods themselves to grow when and where we want and we have endless ways to preserve and transport them. So we're developing products that take advantage of our biology, to create more demand we've talked about how these foods get around our natural satiety signalling and it's that complex signalling that we really need to work for us if we're to keep our body fat down in the long run. Obviously we're going to need to avoid foods that deliberately circumvent satiety but there's another aspect of the way we eat that can make our meals fundamentally unsatisfying. It's one that affects almost all processed food but also whole foods too and it's all to do with the balance between nutrients and energy. We have two broad requirements from our food, the provision of nutrients and that of energy. In terms of nutrients we need to think primarily about protein, the complement of essential amino acids that we need to build, maintain and repair our bodies. Along with protein we need certain essential fatty acids and of course micronutrients, the various vitamins, minerals and other compounds that we cannot live without. In terms of energy, we fuel our activities from either fat, carbohydrates, or both. We can create energy from the amino acids in protein via gluconeogenesis, but it's a metabolically expensive process, a fallback if you like, and we shouldn't aim to use protein as a source of energy. Our satiety signals, the complex hormonal messages that tell us that it's okay to stop eating, are dependent on us having enough of both nutrients, particularly protein, and energy. If we're lacking one or the other, we're going to remain hungry. One of the fundamental reasons we gain fat is that we're constructing meals that contain too much energy and not enough nutrients. We'll not stop feeling hungry until we've had enough protein, and if we try to satisfy our protein requirements with energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods, we'll overeat energy in the process. We can tolerate a degree of calorie restriction in terms of our energy needs because we begin to use our own fat for fuel. Once we've restricted our energy intake for long enough to achieve our goals, we can increase our calories to a maintenance level, but if we're not satisfying our nutrient requirements, we're going to be constantly hungry throughout. If our desire to become and remain lean is so strong that we're able to resist that chronic hunger, we will ultimately become malnourished, unable to maintain our valuable lean mass. And this is an unsustainable scenario because the body is never gonna stop asking for those nutrients. We will eventually need to increase our intake, driven to compensate for that nutritional deficiency. And if we're still not eating the right foods, we'll begin overeating energy all over again. And because during the course of our dieting, we've reduced our metabolic rate, a side effect of calorie restriction, and yet another evolutionary protection mechanism, our new energy surplus is all the greater. The result is that the fat we spent eight weeks losing is back on in eight days. We can't sidestep this cycle and join those few people who succeed in maintaining fat loss in the long term without correcting that balance between nutrients and energy. Neither can we supplement our way out of this. Nature provides us with the perfect balance in the form of whole, unprocessed foods eaten in an evolutionarily consistent way. In later parts, when we talk about what to actually do about all this, we'll discover which foods offer us the best bang for our buck in terms of nutrients, as well as how we can tune into our satiety signals. Next time we'll take a look at how our hormones can affect our fat and our health. In parts 1 and 2 we talked about how our evolution has affected the way we eat and the way we store fat. We talked about how food companies can take advantage of evolutionary traits to create products that we find hard to resist, and how the composition of our meals can further drive us to overeat. Today we're going to talk about how our hormones play into all this. Before we dig in, this aspect of physiology is exceptionally complex. There are hundreds of hormones at work in the human body, and many of them perform multiple functions, interacting and affecting each other in an almost unfathomable series of feedback loops. Clever people study these things for decades and still don't know everything there is to know. Needless to say, in order for this to make any kind of sense to you and I, we need to simplify things a great deal and it's important to acknowledge that. None of the hormones we're going to talk about today are bad actors. It's become common for some of these things to be demonised as people look to manipulate their biochemistry to optimise their physique, wellness or longevity. But evolution has done that work for us, testing the design over and over and taking the best version forward every time. The result is so graceful, so perfect in its complexity that our blundering attempts to change it will almost always work out badly. We're not obese because our endocrine system is inadequate we're obese because we disrupt its proper function. Let's start with a hormone that's been rather unfairly vilified in the low carb space, insulin. Insulin has a number of functions within the body, one of which is to tell cells what to do with energy, whether to store it or release it for use. If our blood glucose rises too high, it will damage our organs and vasculature it's an emergency that can never be allowed to continue unchecked. And one of insulin's most critical functions is to move glucose from the blood into storage in the cells of the liver, muscle, and fat. At the same time, it inhibits the processes by which those cells release energy back into the blood for use. Processes like glycogenolysis, the conversion of stored glycogen to glucose, gluconeogenesis, the creation of glucose from amino acids, and lipolysis, the breakdown of stored fat into fatty acids. Different foods require different quantities of insulin to deal with them. Carbohydrates require by far the most, amino acids from protein rather less, and the triglycerides from the fat we eat almost none, because fat does not need insulin in order to move into the adipose tissue for storage. So what's the problem? Well, it's not so much what insulin has done to us as what we have done to insulin. As we've allowed hyperpalatable processed food products, the marketing of food and the notion of food as entertainment to replace our natural pattern of eating, we've bought into this idea that people need multiple meals interspersed with snacks throughout the day. We're constantly told that we need a given product to get us started in the morning, to fill us with energy, a mid-morning snack to keep us going, lunch, an afternoon snack and a cup of tea followed by dinner and a treat that we deserve after our hard day. These processed food products, breakfast cereals, pastries, granola bars, and energy drinks, typically contain high glycemic carbohydrates, those which spike blood glucose the most, and so require the largest amounts of insulin to control. Even options which most people would consider healthy can sometimes result in extremely high blood sugar. As we take in these boluses of carbohydrate, insulin rises sharply, removing glucose from the blood. As glucose falls, so the pancreas stops producing insulin, but there's a slight lag in that feedback loop which can result in residual insulin pushing glucose a little low. The result is that a couple of hours later we may experience low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, feelings of weakness, inability to concentrate and distracting levels of hunger. We now physically need the next snack to keep functioning normally, and because insulin inhibits lipolysis, the breakdown of our body fat for energy, we have no choice but to eat again. By choosing foods that cause us to produce large amounts of insulin, we're artificially creating the need to eat constantly. The more we snack, the more we need to snack. Some people in the low-carb world are stuck on the idea that insulin, as a regulator of energy storage, is entirely responsible for whether we lay down body fat or not, and that by keeping insulin low, we simply cannot get fatter. Their theory is that calories in doesn't matter and that we will simply excrete or burn off any excess energy rather than store it. And this isn't quite right. Calories do still matter. If our insulin is low, if we're not taking in carbohydrate, we must be getting our dietary energy from fat, which does not require insulin for storage. Our fat cells are constantly accepting fat-based energy from the blood. But it isn't entirely wrong either, because insulin does inhibit lipolysis. In order for us to burn our body fat, insulin must be low at least some of the time. In that low insulin state, we may still be adding fat into storage, but we will simultaneously be breaking down those fat stores for use. We can burn body fat more of the time. If we're cutting out carbohydrate, we're necessarily removing all hyperpalatable processed foods and increasing nutrient density in our diet. Our appetite is going to regulate to some meaningful degree. And while this approach works extremely well for many people, it's important to understand that it's likely working because people are satisfied with fewer calories rather than just because insulin is low. We can still gain fat on a zero-carb diet if we overeat energy. In the same way that some people gain weight on a zero-carb diet, it's possible to lose it on a high-carb diet, provided calories are controlled. We can lose weight eating only Twinkies if we eat few enough of them. So, insulin doesn't make a difference? No, it does. When we control calories, we control insulin to some degree. We'll have to eat our Twinkies in very small quantities, or very infrequently, to stay within our calorie limit. Even though insulin will spike higher than it would on a low carb diet, it will still be low at times. There are endless reasons why a Twinkie diet is a terrible idea, but the point is that we shouldn't fear some periodic spiking of insulin. After all, we've evolved eating boluses of carbohydrates, honey and fruit. If we hadn't, we wouldn't have this graceful mechanism of dealing with them. We need to stop second-guessing the design. Insulin helps us to gain and maintain muscle, increasing our metabolic rate. If we stick to evolutionarily consistent quantities of carbohydrates we don't need to be afraid of insulin. Needless to say those quantities are a great deal lower than those of a standard diet which abuses insulin. Let's talk about that. When insulin is always high some cells may become chronically insulin resistant. They have a limited capacity, they can't just continue to allow energy to flow in but not out, so they begin to stop listening to insulin as it nags at them to do so. What then begins is a battle between the fat cells and the pancreas. The pancreas produces ever more insulin in an attempt to force the issue, a state called hyperinsulinemia, and the fat cells become increasingly insulin resistant. As this battle unfolds, the fat cells get bigger in a process called hypertrophy, and when they can't expand anymore, they become inflamed. Ultimately they completely stop responding to insulin, and regardless of the now massive amounts of the stuff that the pancreas is churning out, they will be constantly leaking energy back into the blood, but now they will also be leaking inflammatory cytokines. And this state is type 2 diabetes. It's important to note that it's an oversimplification to say that eating carbohydrates always causes hyperinsulinemia, which always causes insulin resistance, which always leads to type 2 diabetes. Hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance go hand in hand, but insulin resistance has other causes too. It can be driven by cortisol or inflammation. Furthermore, insulin resistance isn't necessarily bad. It's normal, essential for cells to become acutely insulin resistant as and when they need to. Again, we have to trust evolution's design. It's that chronic state of insulin resistance that we associate with bad outcomes. Some people don't suffer damaging enlargement of their fat cells. They're able to simply create more rather than overfilling the ones they already have. This process of hyperplasia allows them to lay down an extraordinary volume of fat, all of which is functional and healthy. These people are the truly obese, and their physiology protects them against type 2 diabetes. But obviously that level of obesity has other problems of its own. Most people can't just create unlimited numbers of new fat cells like the Truly Obese are able to do. While oestrogen allows adult women to do so around their hips and thighs, typically our fat cells are created during childhood and puberty, and there's a strong genetic component to that process. We each end up with a personal fat threshold, an amount of fat we can healthily store, beyond which our adipose tissue becomes inflamed and inflammatory. It's possible to look skinny, but to be diabetic, profoundly insulin resistant. When the fat beneath our skin, our subcutaneous fat stores are full, we begin to deposit fat in and around our organs, and it's this visceral fat that's so indicative of serious health problems. People who have no capacity for subcutaneous fat are in serious trouble. They have no leeway to overeat, being unable to store fat anywhere healthy. It all ends up within their body cavity. These thin outside, fat inside and truly obese phenotypes sit at the extremes of the curve. Most people with these sorts of problems are going to look visibly overweight and they're going to carry a significant amount of weight around their middle. Their belly might be quite hard to the touch if a lot of that fat is sitting beneath the stomach wall rather than being located subcutaneously. But either way, waist-to-height ratio is a fantastic indicator of metabolic health. We've talked a lot about what happens when we drive blood glucose up, but what happens when it falls too low? Well that's also a potential emergency, and of course the system has an answer in the form of another hormone, cortisol. As well as actively suppressing insulin, cortisol promotes the mobilisation of energy into the blood. It raises our blood sugar and blood pressure. It also breaks down muscle tissue and suppresses the conversion of thyroid hormones, lowering our metabolic rate in order to reduce our energy expenditure in times of scarcity. It's cortisol that gets us up in the morning, cortisol that sustains us when we can't find food and cortisol that provides the immediate fuel for high intensity exercise and our fight or flight response. If we find ourselves face to face with an angry rhinoceros, we get an immediate full tank of blood sugar to enable us to do whatever it is one does in a rhinoceros crisis. So fine, all we need to do is tank our insulin and raise our cortisol as often as possible and our fat will melt away, right? Wrong. Cortisol raises our blood sugar and while that's entirely appropriate if it's low or if we suddenly need to run, what if there is no rhinoceros? It's not just acute stress that will raise cortisol, any stress will do it. Stress is now an epidemic in our modern society. Historically, our lives were hard but simple. We had only to find food and have children. Our small communities were limited in size and scope, unconcerned with the complexities of the world as a whole. We knew few people but knew them well, drawing on our community, our tribe, for support and affirmation. Now, we isolate in tiny family units, separated from the direct support of communal living, separated even from our extended families. We concern ourselves with issues of global importance over which we have no direct control. Our livelihoods are dependent on myriad factors over which, again, we may have no control. We know hundreds of people but can draw little support from any of them. We worry about our past, present and future. Many of us are plagued by chronic sleep problems, lying awake endlessly scanning the web on our bright backlit phones. That lack of sleep and the caffeine we consume in its aftermath further contribute to these constant spikes in cortisol, resulting in chronically elevated blood glucose. And because we never actually have to run away from a rhinoceros, that glucose needs to be put back into storage, driving up insulin to get the job done. Furthermore, we all know what happens when we've had a poor night's sleep. It makes us crave sugar. We don't head down to breakfast thinking about boiled eggs as much as steaming piles of buttered toast slathered with strawberry jam. Our poor sleep affects the balance between another pair of hormones that influence our hunger and satiety, ghrelin and leptin. While we can measure that increase in ghrelin, it isn't yet clear why that hunger is specifically for such carb-centric foods, but we've all experienced that feeling. Cortisol also drives the deposition of abdominal fat. While this isn't relevant in the context of infrequent transient spikes, if cortisol is chronically high, This characteristic drives the apparent migration of fat from relatively safe storage in peripheral areas to harmful abdominal deposition. It moves our fat to the bad place. We can't have a conversation about fat loss without mentioning thyroid hormones. The thyroid gland is the primary regulator of our metabolic rate. It receives messages from the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus instructing it whether to turn the wick up or down, whether it's okay to increase our energy use or whether we need to restrict it to hold on to our fat stores. Its activities depend on the complex interaction of a number of thyroid-specific hormones, as well as others like cortisol. By under-eating or over-training we can provoke a down-regulation in thyroid hormone production, slowing our metabolism. Equally there are a number of diseases that affect us in a similar way, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis. The diagnosis of thyroid problems is tricky because of the way the various hormones affect each other, a practitioner has to be able to tease out where the problem lies in this complex feedback loop. The pituitary gland, the thyroid itself, maybe the downstream conversion of T4 to the active T3 hormone. To muddy the waters even further, low carbohydrate diets may increase the efficiency of thyroid hormones, making adequate levels appear low, while the caloric restriction that these diets can encourage may result in a genuine deficiency. If we don't eat enough, we will begin to suffer with the symptoms of hyperthyroid, something which happened to me while following a calorie-restricted zero-carb diet for a long period of time. I was constantly cold even in warm weather, tired, lethargic and weak, Now, I'm not a clinician, and I have neither the knowledge nor experience to offer any specific suggestions on the diagnosis and treatment of these sorts of problems. But I can say that if you have symptoms of hypothyroidism, if you're cold, tired, lacking in energy, or you feel that you're unable to lose fat despite maintaining what should be a calorie deficit, you should get some medical advice. The same goes for any hormonal problems. A doctor who specialises in hormone-related problems has very kindly agreed to come on in a future episode and talk about these things in more detail. If you have questions, please comment or get in touch privately. So, what we start to see in this highly simplified depiction is that the natural ballet of these hormones, their elegant ebb and flow as they maintain homeostasis, becomes replaced with a dysregulated, unbalanced mess. As we repeatedly attack that finely tuned mechanism with excessive quantities of sugar, chronic stress and poor sleep, we inhibit our ability to burn fat, inflame our fat cells, reduce our metabolic rate and increase the breakdown of that muscle that we so badly need to retain. We ultimately cause a state of serious chronic disease that, due to the complex dependencies within the system, affects almost every aspect of our general health. The very habits that drive us to become obese upset the balance that enables us to effectively lose fat. For most of us, the root cause of our problems is not the hormones themselves, but the ways we continue to drive them. While for some people significant damage has been done and they need some additional medical intervention to get back on track, all of us need to stop putting the wrong fuel in the tank. In the next episode, we'll look at what to do about all this, the actionable steps we can take to get control of our bodies and lose some of that fat. In the previous parts, we looked at how our evolution has affected the way we eat and the way we store fat. We talked about how food companies can take advantage of those evolutionary traits to create products that we find hard to resist, and how the composition of our meals can further drive us to overeat. Finally, we discussed the relationship between our food, our fat and our hormones. So what do we actually do with all this information? How do we lose fat? Firstly, we need to be a little more specific with our goals. As we've established, losing weight isn't complicated. If we maintain a calorie deficit, we will shrink. But losing weight isn't the sum total of our objectives. We want to lose fat specifically, not lean mass. We want to do so while keeping our metabolic rate high so that we don't immediately regain the fat that we've lost. And we want to achieve this by establishing a new, satisfying way of eating that we can stick to indefinitely so that we no longer need subject ourselves to the misery of dieting. Now we can't get around the fact that calories matter. All the other factors that affect our fat loss, hyperpalatable foods, nutrient to energy ratio, meal composition and hormone balance, all do so by virtue of the way they influence either how much we take in or how much we expend. Energy balance is still at the core of things. And while it's far too simplistic to say that it's just calories in on the one side and exercise on the other, the caloric value of our daily intake is still the most significant lever we can pull. Of course we're going to talk about ways to make that lever easier to pull, and ultimately we want to be pulling it without thinking about it, but the fact remains that the first thing to do in any weight loss journey is to get some idea of what we're really eating. Our ultimate goal is that we won't be weighing and tracking our food, but initially, and certainly if we've never done so before, it's extremely useful to go through a period of calorie counting. Most of us honestly have no idea what 100 grams of a given food actually looks like on a plate, or how much energy that portion contains. Just the painstaking process of weighing and logging our food can be quite enlightening, and for many of us a competitive urge to beat the numbers begins to establish itself. So to start with we want to get ourselves a digital kitchen scale and a calorie counting app. Chronometer is a popular one. By putting our details into an online macro calculator, we can get a rough idea of what our daily calorie allowance should be. In establishing that allowance, we don't want to opt for too aggressive a calorie deficit. That's going to risk a downregulation of our metabolic rate. It's hard to say exactly where that point lies, but it's better to lose fat slowly. We don't want our primal brain to infer a dangerous level of scarcity and start reducing our energy expenditure. Studies show that people who increase their calories back to maintenance level at the weekend, for example, maintain their metabolic rate more effectively, even if they do take slightly longer to reach their goal weight. We want to play the long game here. But eating at maintenance doesn't mean a cheat day or going on a binge. We still need to carefully track our intake. A period of calorie counting is going to get us moving in the right direction straight away and allow us to calibrate our expectations to some degree. But for most of us, it's not a permanent solution. If we want to dispense with that rigmarole, we need to get our bodies working properly to regulate our appetite and get our satiety back in line with our requirements. The most crucial step in achieving this is to remove processed food. In doing so, we protect ourselves from foods that are engineered to be hyperpalatable and drastically increase the ratio of satiating nutrients to energy. We will likely see improved blood glucose regulation and so hormone balance. Whether we choose to be vegetarian, carnivore, ketogenic, pescatarian, whatever, removing processed food is the single biggest upgrade we can make and should be top of our list from day one. So what constitutes processed food? Well, we need to be suspicious of any food product, anything with an ingredients list. It might be that after careful consideration, we allow certain products. We might need mustard, pickles, canned fish, that sort of thing. But packaged foods should be rigorously scrutinised and made to justify their place in our kitchen. Fundamentally, we want to focus on fresh seasonal foods that remain in their natural form. We can ask ourselves, If I had a knife and a spade, could I obtain this food in this form from nature? At first, we might find whole foods rather bland. They contain none of the flavour enhancement of processed foods, and in particular far less salt. We can certainly afford to season our food more aggressively, more like a professional chef, because we're no longer getting all that hidden sodium. When we completely exclude hyperpalatable foods our taste buds recalibrate and we quickly begin to taste the true sweetness in things like onions, peas, carrots and very much so in relatively low sugar fruits like berries. A portion of frozen blueberries or strawberries tastes like the most intense sorbet and 95% dark chocolate has a sense of sweetness that we previously associated with milk chocolate. The notion of a dessert without the unwanted energy and with some genuinely useful nutrients seems too good to be true, but it's well within reach. We just need to allow that recalibration. At this point it's worth mentioning processed seed oils. These polyunsaturated oils have become a huge part of our diet following the demonisation of saturated fat in the later part of the last century. The levels of inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids in our modern diet have risen far beyond our ancestral intake, in large part due to the introduction of vegetable oil. There's increasingly compelling evidence that these oils like sunflower, safflower, cottonseed, rapeseed, corn, and soybean oils are harmful to humans, and that they may be obesogenic by virtue of the way they affect our fat itself. Some researchers and doctors believe that they're responsible for much of our chronic disease, obesity included. While omega-6 fatty acids are an essential part of our diet, we should probably get them from whole food sources where they exist in the right ratios, not in the form of oxidised, chemically extracted, deodorised industrial lubricants. Our next step could be to prioritise protein. Studies show that the more protein we eat, the more satiating our meals become as those nutrient-rich sources of protein increase, so they displace nutrient-poor sources of energy, reducing our caloric intake. Not only do we eat less energy, but that protein has the highest thermic effect of all the macronutrients. Digesting it increases our energy expenditure. Furthermore, it supports our metabolically active lean mass, keeping our basal metabolic rate high. So, how much protein are we talking about? Well, opinions vary. Some researchers point to evidence that suggests that we recycle a lot of our protein endogenously and so don't need to take in more than the current recommended daily amount of about a third of a gram per pound of body weight. Others strongly disagree, stating that that's the bare minimum needed for survival and that we ideally need more like one gram per pound of ideal weight, particularly if we're doing resistance exercise, which we'll talk about in a later episode. Some bodybuilders eat far more, two grams per pound or even higher, but there's no evidence that those very high intakes are beneficial. Equally, it's important to note that there's no evidence of harm either. Just because those with compromised kidney function cannot process large amounts of protein, that doesn't mean that large amounts of protein cause compromised kidney function. Considering the benefits to satiety, nutrient density and lean mass retention, we're likely going to benefit from that 1 gram per pound of ideal body weight mark. And anecdotally, that seems to be where people do well. It's worth noting that we need at least 30 grams of protein per meal to get the 3 grams of the amino acid leucine that we require for muscle protein synthesis. Organ meats like liver are the greatest source of micronutrients of all many people note that their satiety increases when they include organ meats, which gives further credence to the notion that we have specific hunger signals for different nutrients. Of course, it may just be that if you hate liver, you eat less when your meal contains liver. It's worth trying to include more of these things, but don't worry if you find that you really don't like them. While we're looking to shift our intake away from energy-dense, nutrient-poor, empty calories, we shouldn't be afraid of consuming nutrient-rich sources of energy. Those animal fats that come part and parcel with our protein contain fat-soluble vitamins, phenolic compounds and essential polyunsaturated fatty acids. Equally, some energy-dense plant foods like fruit offer us further micronutrients, vitamin C for example. Whole foods provide us with the balance that tends to work and while we do need to be a little wary of meat that's been deliberately bred to be excessively fatty or fruit that we've selectively bred and modified to contain processed food levels of sugar by and large if we can stick to meat, fish, eggs, fresh fruit and vegetables we won't be overdoing our energy intake simply because we're hungry for nutrients. There are those that will argue that we don't need any carbohydrates or plant foods whatsoever They argue that they're a minefield of anti-nutrients and toxins and that not only do we not need them, we do much better without them. And of course there are people who claim the opposite, that animal foods are bad for us and that we can thrive on plants alone. When people adopt these diets they often do well initially because they're excluding all that processed food that was causing them problems on a standard diet. Some may do well on carnivore diets because their gut dysfunction has reached a point where they seem to react badly to almost all plant material, and that was the case for me. So these diets can be helpful, but over time, for some people, cracks may start to appear, and we seek to explain this by pointing to deficiencies in the RDAs, the recommended daily allowances of certain micronutrients. People then often try to supplement their way out of trouble, but there are problems with that. Not only are supplemental forms of these nutrients different, sometimes chemically, sometimes in the way we absorb them, but our understanding of those RDAs is limited. They're based more on opinion than on concrete evidence, they're our best guess. We don't know how those guesses might need to change in the context of more extreme diets, where our bodies might up or down regulate our requirements for certain nutrients furthermore we are focused on only a tiny fraction of the compounds that mass spectrometry now reveals exist in whole foods we have no idea what some of these things do or how important they might be so for my money the smartest thing to do is to try to eat as much as possible like our ancestors would have done evolution favored their combination of biology and diet The human animal hasn't changed all that much, the 10,000 years that have passed since we adopted agriculture isn't all that long in evolutionary terms, and the processed food production of the last 50 years doesn't even amount to the blink of an eye. We can hedge our bets against all that we don't know about what's really in our food and how it affects our bodies by following an approach that, by virtue of being judged by evolution, is likely to be optimal almost by definition. It's tricky for us to construct a truly ancestral diet because we now live in a different environment. The soil, water, air, plants and animals have all been altered and not perhaps for the better. In a future episode it might be interesting to talk about how we can best mimic our ancestral diet, but for now let's imagine what it might have looked like. I don't think there are any historic examples of humans completely excluding plants with the possible exception of certain groups in the Arctic Circle. Neither were our ancestors vegan. While it's worth noting that the nitrogen isotope data indicates that meat was the lion's share of our diet, no pun intended, that doesn't mean that plants didn't have an important role to play. Our ancestors were omnivores, albeit ones who prized and based their diet around animal foods a sharp contrast to the modern food pyramid. They used cooking and fermentation to make a wider variety of plant foods tolerable. Their intake of sugar was limited in frequency and quantity, and their dietary energy sources were less consistent than ours. They might have had fat one day and carbohydrate the next. They likely had more fat at certain times of the year and more carbohydrates at others. They would have had more food one day and less the next. Overall, Their diet was by modern standards, low carb, but not no carb. They had to be flexible. If not, why would evolution have given them the ability to tolerate carbohydrates at all? Depending on the latitude at which they lived, their diets would have varied. And this is likely one reason why we have individual variations in how well we tolerate different foods today. So, the first actionable steps on our fat loss journey should be to get some perspective on how much we're eating, to remove all processed food and to prioritise protein, to shift the balance of our meals away from energy and towards satiating nutrients. Just these steps alone are gonna make a huge difference and they form the basis of a happier, healthier approach to food. We've talked a lot about carbohydrates and established that our ancestors certainly ate them, but unlike us, in a quantity and frequency that their endocrine system was well adapted to dealing with. In the coming parts we'll take a closer look at low-carb, zero-carb and ketogenic diets and ask ourselves whether, in the context of fat loss, we should be adopting them or not. I'll share some of my own personal experience with those diets and how they've affected me. We'll talk about exercise and what particular types of training might best suit our goals, and we'll look at tips, tricks and pitfalls, what behaviours or mindsets might help or hinder us as we continue to lose fat. Last time we looked at the foundations of our fat loss journey, getting a handle on calorie intake, removing processed food, and prioritising nutrients over energy. That discussion, along with the one surrounding hormones back in part 3, led to a lot of talk about carbohydrates. Today, let's start by taking a bit of a closer look at the very low-carb, ketogenic and carnivore ways of eating. Let's ask ourselves if those approaches might support our fat loss. A ketogenic diet is one where our intake of carbohydrate is so low, less than about 30 grams per day, that our liver begins to produce ketone bodies from fat, which our cells can use as an alternative to glucose. A state of deep ketosis requires that our intake of protein is also moderated because if we have high dietary protein, we can drive the creation of glucose via gluconeogenesis. In effect, ketosis is the body's answer to the question what will I do for energy when there isn't much to eat? Indeed, the most effective way to trigger deep ketosis is to fast for a couple of days. Most people are surprised at how unexpectedly good they feel, how alert and full of energy. And that's down to ketones. And of course it makes sense that we've adapted this way. If our survival depends on finding more food, we're not going to last long if we crumble at the first sign of scarcity, incapacitated by fatigue and hunger. Alongside a number of wider physiological benefits, ketosis suppresses that distracting hunger and provides us with an acute state of alertness, focus and vigilance that allows us to address the problem at hand. Today, many ketogenic dieters enjoy that heightened focus, a suppressed appetite, and what appears to be a metabolic advantage of some two to 300 calories a day in increased energy expenditure. Ketosis can make for an extremely effective weight loss tool, which makes total sense. In order to be in deep ketosis, we're going to be burning our body fat to create those ketones. Or are we? The level of the ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate in our blood, has become a popular metric for the depth of ketosis. If we're seeing high levels of serum ketones while in a calorie deficit, we can be sure that we are burning a lot of body fat. And because insulin will be low, that we'll be burning it all the time. People therefore use their BHB measurements as a proxy for fat loss and will go to great lengths to increase those numbers one way in which we can do this is to eat more fat driving the creation of ketones we hear phrases like eat fat to burn fat but the more energy we eat the more we will replenish our fat stores and the less body fat we will lose overall by chasing higher ketone readings in this way we can wind up stalling our fat loss or even gaining fat Equally, we do ourselves no favours by starving to very deep levels of ketosis. We need to be wary of what that scarcity signal might do to our metabolic rate. While many of us in the developed world badly need a little more scarcity in our lives, we need to tread carefully. Today there's a rather misguided dogmatism in the keto world, with some advocates insisting that all human beings should be in deep ketosis all the time, that eating a quantity of carbohydrate or protein that takes us out of ketosis is a failure bound to result in ill health. This notion is based upon the assumptions that ancestrally we existed almost entirely on fatty meat and that our default metabolic state was one of ketosis. These assumptions are shaky While there's considerable evidence for the prioritisation of meat in the ancestral diet, it's undeniable that we also included carbohydrates. Surviving hunter-gatherer tribes offer us a limited window to the past, and their passion for honey, the risks they take to obtain it, are both telling and unsurprising. Why wouldn't we eat it if we could? Why wouldn't we eat fruit? And of course, our biology, our ability to deal with sugars, confirms that these are foods we have evolved. To eat. But we should note that evolutionarily consistent quantities would likely have been, well, inconsistent. Our ancestors would not have had uninterrupted access to their various sources of food. They might have gorged themselves on honey one day and then gone several days without. After a big kill their supply of meat would have displaced the need to gather fruits or roots for several days. Their carbohydrate intake might have been limited to certain months of the year the point is that they were flexible. They could tolerate large boluses of carbohydrates or be happy with none at all. In sharp contrast to the developed world where we drip feed sugar in at two hourly intervals, day in, day out, from the cradle to the, well, to the grave. In the same way, the fact that we have the ability to enter deep ketosis at all suggests that we occasionally needed to do so but it was more likely to be during times of scarcity, starvation, rather than a default to ketogenic macros. After all, when meat was plentiful, we'd have likely eaten ourselves out of ketosis, even without extra carbohydrates. I'd argue that for the most part our ancestors were only occasionally deeply ketotic and that their default state was more likely hovering around the fringes of mild ketosis, not necessarily above the 0.5 millimolar that now qualifies as nutritional ketosis. Arctic populations like the Inuit are held up as being the definitive ketogenic society on the basis that they wouldn't have had any access to plant foods. However, studies of that population reveal that they were not in ketosis on their normal diet. Not only would their high protein intake have suppressed ketone production, but analysis of the marine animals that comprised their diet showed them to be unexpectedly high in stored glycogen. But what's really more interesting from our point of view is that they appear to have an adaptation that prevents them from easily producing ketones in any case. And this begs the question, Why was that an advantage? Was it because there was some issue with long-term ketosis? The answer is that we don't really know. I'd offer the caution that if we're going to judge chronically high carbohydrate intake to be at odds with our biology, a contributor to ill health over a long period of time, in the interest of even-handedness, we might grant that chronic ketosis could also negatively affect us over decades. With no historic populations that we can point to as evidence of the safety of this approach, we might hedge our bets and use ketogenic diets periodically rather than on a permanent basis. This, we know, is firmly part of our design. That said, there are many individuals who maintain deep ketosis on a permanent basis and seem to be doing very well. It's almost certainly safe for a significant period of time and has been shown to be of great benefit to those who've begun to struggle with blood glucose regulation. Some people use strict ketosis to keep certain types of cancer, types that are fueled by glucose, in remission. If someone does better on a ketogenic diet, it would seem that for them, at that point in time, that's the right approach. We always have to distinguish between what's optimal for a sick person and what might work well for the healthy. So what about all this carnivore nonsense? The carnivore diet, which excludes all plant foods, appears to be transformative in the same ways as the ketogenic diet, regulating blood sugar, controlling appetite and insulin. But it also seems, anecdotally at least, to alleviate the symptoms of various autoimmune diseases. While diabetes or pre-diabetes affect a shocking 60% of American adults, autoimmune issues have also skyrocketed. People report that by removing plant foods all manner of symptoms seem to disappear overnight and there are a growing number of clinicians who've adopted the approach. Maybe processed food, pollutants, stress or pathogens unknown cause our gut to become so dysbiotic that we lose the ability to tolerate plants, intestinal permeability gets out of control and our immune system begins to react to the compounds which are passing through our intestine into our bloodstream. The carnivore diet is seen as almost an extension of the ketogenic diet, keto on steroids, but it isn't necessarily ketogenic at all. Many people on carnivore diets are eating more than enough protein to sidestep nutritional ketosis, yet they don't seem to lose out when it comes to fat loss. If anything, people seem to report that carnivore was what allowed them to push past the weight loss stall that they'd encountered on keto. It's hard to say for sure why this is, but it's worth noting that the keto world can often be awash with processed food of its own. Keto treats, bars and fat bombs, they might have no carbs but they contain a lot of energy and they can surely be hyperpalatable. Carnivore dodges these foods and many proponents also avoid dairy, which is another common cause of weight loss stalls. So what does that tell us? It tells us that While periods of ketosis might well be part and parcel of a better approach to food, it's not the ketosis itself that governs our success as we try to lose fat. Ultimately, it boils down to the core tenets that we've already covered in this series. The ability to maintain a calorie deficit by regulating appetite, hormones, metabolic rate and lean mass. What both ketogenic and carnivore diets seem to do for people is to make it easier for them to build those pillars that ultimately support their fat loss. So what's my experience of these diets? In my late 30s, what had previously been some mild intolerance to wheat and dairy developed into significant gut issues, chronic IBS and mixed IBS. I struggled to properly digest anything, even finding myself waking at night vomiting. After many miserable years, I tried carnivore for a joke as much as anything else. I was writing a book at the time and I thought it would make for entertaining material. I was surprised to say the least when my gut problems were resolved almost overnight. I adopted and remained on Paleo Medicina's PKD protocol for 30 months, eating only meat, salt and water. While that was enormously beneficial for my gut, it wasn't entirely problem-free. One issue which Dr. Paul Saladino also experienced on a zero-carb diet was that of chronic cramps. It didn't seem to matter how much electrolyte I took in, how much salt or magnesium, I would wake in the night with painful cramps in my calves. I also suffered from a fast, powerful heartbeat that sometimes kept me awake. It seemed that without some periodic carbohydrates, I couldn't properly absorb those electrolytes. I ultimately discovered that even tiny quantities of raw honey alleviated this. Additionally, while I went into the diet very lean, I lost weight. A lot of weight. I was strictly adhering to paleomedicine's quantity guidelines which add up to a low daily intake and it simply wasn't enough food. As well as losing what little body fat I'd started with, I began to lose lean mass as well. I felt tired, listless and cold. I didn't feel like I was starving. I didn't feel particularly hungry and I experienced a degree of body dysmorphia that prevented me from seeing how emaciated I had become. It was only when I came to weigh myself that I realised that at 55 kilos, 120 pounds, I was dangerously underweight. Of course, most carnivores won't be adhering to that very low intake guideline. Many find that they naturally eat the perfect amount, and I'm not presenting this as a criticism. And obviously, we're here talking about fat loss. I can attest to the fact that the satiating nature of that diet, the lack of hyperpalatable food, the low insulin, all these factors made it very easy to lose weight. The problem was that rather than a subtle calorie deficit, I'd starved myself without really meaning to. I'd lost my valuable muscle mass, my metabolic rate was rock bottom and in order to fix it I had to undergo a reverse diet. I had to prove to my brain that there was no longer the danger of scarcity. When I began to deliberately eat beyond satiety, adding in daily fresh fruit and honey to increase my appetite, I gained both muscle and fat extremely quickly. After a period of six months at a much higher level of body fat, I began to gradually reduce my intake, keeping protein and nutrients high, and slowly brought my body fat back down a little, while still eating twice the amount of food that I had been before. I remain broadly carnivore, but now include raw honey and berries once a week, and I don't hold back. That seems to have solved my electrolyte absorption issues and it gives me the confidence to know that I can tolerate significant quantities of carbohydrates if I need to. It makes me more robust, more resilient in that respect. I feel like I'm full of energy, happy and healthy. I'm still unable to tolerate most plant foods but that combination of fresh fruit, honey and meat seems to be providing me with everything I need for now. I'm open to trying anything, and while most of my attempts to reintroduce plants haven't worked out, I'm not assuming that they can't in the future. I not only had to fix my body, but also my mind. I had to deal with that body dysmorphia to recalibrate my perception of what a healthy human being looks like. As we endeavour to lose fat, we must keep in mind that the images of physical perfection that we're exposed to, the standard that the internet creates in our mind's eye, is only achievable on a temporary basis. We can't live at that body fat percentage for any length of time. We need to be realistic about what health looks like. It isn't just skin and veins. So, there are pros and cons to these very low-carbohydrate diets. On the plus side, the removal of addictive, sweet-tasting foods, the high protein percentage and the nutrient density can be a superb way to correct satiety signalling. Ketogenic diets may give us a slight metabolic advantage and for those that have begun to have blood glucose regulation problems, a very low-carb approach may be the best fit, helping to regulate excessive production of insulin. But, as I discovered, chronically minimal insulin may make it difficult for some of us to absorb electrolytes. And by not occasionally exercising the machinery that deals with a bolus of carbohydrates, we make ourselves temporarily less able to do so. And that might represent a weakness, a chink in our metabolic armour. By completely excluding plant foods long term, we might be making ourselves vulnerable to nutrient deficiencies, including compounds that we haven't yet fully understood. And while these diets can regulate hormones for some of us, they can do the opposite for others, stimulating a scarcity that prompts the brain to downregulate sex or thyroid hormones in response. If we're starting from a state of ill health, we need to find a practitioner who has clinical experience of the way these diets might alleviate or compound our particular issues. I'd particularly like to highlight the fact that some of these more extreme approaches can interact strongly with eating disorders. I say interact rather than exacerbate because some people find them very helpful but these things must be addressed with the support of an experienced clinician. My own brush with body dysmorphia showed me how vulnerable we can be and I was lucky to tackle that without help. If you think you may be suffering from any sort of eating disorder, however mild, get some professional advice. So should we be low carb, high carb, ketogenic, carnivore? Yes, if we're healthy, we can exercise the metabolic flexibility that evolution has given us. Now, when we exclude processed food and increase nutrient density, we're going to end up broadly low carb overall. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we include carbs in the form of nutrient poor, energy dense junk foods. Within the right framework, we can include the practice of eating carbs as well as that of eating none at all. We can mimic some of the inconsistency that characterised our ancestral lifestyle. Remember that we can lose or gain fat with or without carbohydrates. It's all about consistently managing our calorie intake. We're not looking for a diet, but a way of eating that we can adopt permanently. And the aggressive exclusion of carbohydrates long term might not be beneficial. Let's find what works for each of us, what best supports our goals at any given time. While that might be keto or carnivore at some stage in the process, we can play around with these approaches without dogmatically painting ourselves into corners that we feel we can't escape should they no longer serve us. Our best shot at that long-term flexibility comes from understanding our own individual responses to certain foods. When it comes to fat loss, to regulating our appetite, balancing hormones and to our health in general, we need to keep blood sugar stable. It's therefore extremely helpful to find out how well we're tolerating different sources of carbohydrate. In his superb book Wired to Eat, Rob Wolf establishes what he calls the 7 day carb test. It's a protocol by which we can measure our own glycemic response to different foods using a cheap readily available glucometer. By following this simple protocol we can explore our individual tolerances. Either pick up a copy of wired to eat or join Rob's online community, The Healthy Rebellion. There are regular resets in which members can follow the protocol under guidance from the team and there's a fantastic community providing both support and accountability. Next time we'll be wrapping things up with a look at exercise, fasting and the tips and tricks that might help us along the way. In the previous parts we talked about the discrepancies between the way we eat and the way we evolved to eat. We looked at hyperpalatability, food engineering, the role of our hormones and the advantage of whole unprocessed foods. We asked and answered the question of whether very low carb diets like keto and carnivore are necessary for fat loss. Today we're going to move on to exercise, sleep and stress reduction but first let's take a look at fasting and ask whether that's a good idea in this context. The practice of abstaining from food is ingrained in our religious and cultural norms over thousands of years, and for good reason. We're adapted to feast and famine, and when there's too much of one or the other, we don't do so well. As we increasingly moved away from our hunter-gatherer origins and began to take a more organised approach to our food supply, we developed ways of sidestepping the periods of scarcity that had historically balanced our energy intake. It fell largely to religion to re-establish a semblance of that scarcity, to ingrain the practice of fasting to the benefit of our physical and spiritual health. As we discussed back in part three, we've bought into marketing strategies that convince us that we need three meals interspersed with snacks throughout the day, without which we will surely perish. The reality is rather different. Most people simply don't need to eat more than twice a day, and some do well on one meal, provided they're able to eat enough in that single sitting to satisfy their nutrient requirements. If we're healthy, if our hormones are balanced, we find that we can leave far longer gaps between our meals without experiencing hunger. Our body fat does its job of sustaining us until we eat again. By leaving those longer gaps, by keeping insulin low more of the time, we give ourselves a larger window in which to burn fat. And the fewer meals we eat, the less we consume overall. Even if we eat as much as we possibly can in one meal, we're unlikely to eat as much as we would in three meals, even if we were holding back to some degree. As we cut processed food and excessive carbohydrates out of our diet, as our metabolic hormones and signalling regulate, as we begin to burn body fat more effectively, so our feeding window tends to shorten. We might not feel the need to eat until lunchtime. And this is termed intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding. A typical strategy might be the 16-8 approach, fasting for 16 hours and then eating in an 8-hour window. Some reduce that to a 4-hour window or even less. While studies show that shifting our meals earlier in the day, skipping dinner rather than breakfast might hold some slight metabolic advantage, most of us find that a later window fits better with our lifestyle. Some people skip entire days of eating or use multi-day fasts for going all food for say three days or even a week. The idea is that this will encourage the process of autophagy by which the body begins to recycle its own proteins targeting dysfunctional cells first. It's like a spring clean for the body. So how might fasting affect our fat loss? Well, the danger is that by fasting too much, we negatively affect our old friend's metabolic rate and lean mass. The last thing we want to do is to signal scarcity or starvation. Prolonged fasting may be a great way to lose weight, but it's also a great way to gain it back again. But there's an argument that says that despite the use of the term intermittent fasting, shortening our feeding window a little bit isn't really fasting. We're not starving or necessarily even restricting our intake at all. We're just eating only when we're hungry, which seems pretty sensible. There's nothing wrong with chopping and changing on a daily basis, eating more or less frequently as we feel we need to. Women particularly might find that they need to adjust their meal frequency in different phases of their reproductive cycle. They might need to eat earlier during the luteal phase. A related approach that can work very well for fat loss is the protein-sparing modified fast, a term coined by Maria and Craig Emmerich. Again it's not really fasting. The idea here is that by focusing on very lean sources of protein we cut as much energy as possible from our diet while keeping nutrient intake very high. This encourages our body to take its energy from our fat stores. Now we can't live like this day in day out, over time we'd experience a sort of nitrogen toxicity called rabbit starvation, but we can certainly do it for short periods and on a regular basis. The great advantage of this over traditional fasting is that when we keep our protein intake high we don't break down our muscle mass. So compressing our feeding window a bit is typically a good idea, but are there scenarios in which we do need to eat early and often? Problems tend to arise when people become overzealous. Combining one meal a day, brutal CrossFit workouts, calorie restriction and cold exposure, these compounding stressors can lead to a state of depletion that needs to be undone. Some people are already suffering from hormonal issues like hypothyroid and might need to be wary of any further stressors. And it's also worth noting that if our goal is to build as much muscle as humanly possible, we may choose to follow the bodybuilding approach of eating often throughout the day, hitting that crucial 3 grams of leucine at every meal in order to maximise muscle protein synthesis. Talking of bodybuilding, what about exercise? It might seem surprising that I've come almost to the end of this series before delving into exercise. For most of us, the notion of fat loss conjures up two images. The first involves us morosely picking at a salad, one that consists mainly of lettuce and cucumber, and the second features the torture of daily runs, during which, if it would only allow us to stop, our death would be little more than a minor inconvenience. But the reason I haven't mentioned cardio exercise earlier is because it just isn't that important. It isn't necessary for fat loss. And actually, I'd go further and suggest that to some extent, it should be avoided. Let me explain. Large amounts of steady state cardio exercise requires a lot of calories. That's why we've been told that it's the way to burn fat. The problem is that our bodies are frugal. They see a problem with this huge energy bill. Imagine the cost of your electricity suddenly increases by £1,000 a month. Your savings are being eaten away, and you know that if you don't do something, you'll eventually run out of money. So what do you do? Well, you reduce the amount of electricity you're using and try to become as efficient as possible. You reduce your other domestic outgoings, saving money wherever you can, and you try to increase your income to top up your bank account by looking for extra sources of cash. Your body does exactly the same. It adapts to the demand that you've introduced to make you more efficient at steady state cardio. It minimizes the amount of calories you require in order to perform that exercise. It also reduces your other outgoings by down-regulating your metabolic rate, reducing the amount of metabolically expensive, heavy muscle mass that you're carrying around. It shuts down other processes that aren't needed in the short term, like the production of sex hormones. And because it's on the hunt for more income, it makes you hungry. It asks for more fuel. So here's what happens. We get on the treadmill and run for an hour or more until it says that we've burned a thousand calories. Okay, firstly, we haven't burned a thousand calories because the treadmill's pants are on fire. We probably burned half that and maybe a bit more and in doing that on a regular basis we push our body to become more efficient at it and make savings elsewhere. Our true deficit is therefore less than 500 calories but we think it's a thousand and now we're starving. So on the way out of the gym we grab a granola bar and a latte and all of a sudden that hour of running might as well not have happened we could have achieved the same result by not training at all. But wait, maybe we're more controlled than that. Maybe we're counting calories pretty strictly and we're not gullible enough to believe the treadmill's optimistic assessment of our endeavours. We skip the snacks and we do lose weight. Fast. But we're going to wind up with less muscle, more energy efficiency and a lower metabolic rate. We're going to be smaller but also weaker. We're going to shrink but we're going to need fewer calories to maintain our new weight. We're gonna drop clothing sizes, but we're going to be hungry. And we're gonna need to run even more if we want to enjoy the same amount of food. We wind up in an unsustainable spiral of trying to buy food with exercise. And when we ultimately regain that weight, we add fat far more easily than we add muscle. So in the end, we wind up at the same size, but now with less muscle and a lower metabolic rate let me paint a different picture. If we focus our efforts on resistance training, on sending our bodies a message that they need to be stronger, our muscle mass will increase, our metabolic rate will rise and we'll become less efficient with our calories. Our body won't see the need to make savings. We'll maintain a calorie deficit more easily by virtue of our metabolically expensive muscle mass. We'll get stronger and leaner, and we'll be able to keep eating as we do so. If we want to, we could also do some periodic high-intensity cardio exercise, short, sharp sessions of just a few minutes where we give our best effort sprinting, rowing or cycling. It's going to make us fitter, and despite the intensity, it's a lot easier to face a 10-minute sprint session once a week than an hour on the treadmill every day. Around that, we want to be as active as possible. We can gently increase our energy expenditure by walking, taking the stairs, being on our feet. We can look for opportunities to regularly increase our non-exercise activity throughout the day. It's far better to be generally active than it is to run for six miles and then sit in front of a computer for 10 hours. Before we move on, it's worth just reiterating that it's extremely difficult to assign a specific number of calories to a given exercise session. If we're counting calories at times, we're better off ignoring exercise in our calculations and focusing instead on just finding a daily calorie allowance that works overall. So the takeaway point here is that in order to lose fat, we should focus on building muscle. Not only does it better suit our goals, but at the end of the day, we don't wanna be skinny and weak. We wanna be lean and strong. Back in part three, we discussed the hormone cortisol its relationship with poor sleep, and how insufficient sleep is enough to derail our fat loss all by itself. We need to be getting between seven and nine hours of restful sleep every night, and a great number of us are struggling to do so. I didn't sleep more than an hour at a time for years. The topic of sleep is a series all of its own, but for now, let's look at a few tips that can help us. First and foremost if we're drinking any caffeine at all at any time of the day it's worth excluding it for a few weeks just to see what happens. I have the utmost sympathy with anyone who loves their coffee as much as I did but some of us don't clear it quickly enough. After three years without coffee I recently tried some delicious decaf beans that a friend recommended. I didn't sleep for two days. We need to be wary of decaf, wary of pre-workout shakes, wary of tea, particularly green tea like matcha. We must assume that caffeine is a problem until we can prove to ourselves that it isn't. I know that isn't going to be a popular suggestion. We must avoid alcohol and I know that isn't going to be popular either. If there's one thing that reliably interferes with sleep it's alcohol. By forcing our body to deal with that toxin, we delay the process of rest and recovery. Again, I do understand why some people might be resistant to the suggestion and why they seek solace in the narrative that alcohol is actually helping them to drift off, but it's up there with caffeine as one of the most potent disruptors of restful sleep. You could also argue that the last thing we need on a fat loss journey is a lack of inhibition and a source of empty calories. We must try to avoid eating too close to bedtime. We don't want our blood glucose to be rising as we go to bed, and we don't want our digestive system to be running on overdrive as we try to sleep. Obviously, this can be a challenge if we're doing shift work or if we live in a country where cultural norms dictate a very late evening meal. But if we can, it's better to leave a few hours between our last meal and bedtime. We want to keep our bedroom cool, dark and quiet. It's surprising how light coming in around the curtains can interfere with our sleep. Snoring, or some degree of obstructive sleep apnea, is an extremely common problem that affects not only our sleep, but that of any partner that might share our bed. If these problems are severe, they can be dangerous and require medical intervention. But for most of us, there's a simpler solution in the form of mouth taping. By sticking a small piece of micropore tape over our lips we will breathe through our nose rather than through our mouth. It can take a little getting used to but it's quite safe and can transform the quality of our sleep. It's also worth trying to sleep on our side rather than our back because that encourages our lower jaw to sit forward, preventing it from receding and closing our airway. There are pillows that can make this position more comfortable. Some people sleep with a tennis ball fixed in the small of their back so that they will always settle on their side as they move around during the night. We need to be wary of too much blue light from backlit devices late in the evening. We can use night modes where possible and avoid looking at our phones during the night. A bedside clock is a better way to check the time. If I wake in the night, mind racing, agonising about the past and worrying about the future, I use the following trick. I visualise a fast reactive physical activity, one where I don't have much time to think but instead just automatically react. My favourites are a game of table tennis or running slightly out of control down a rocky mountain path. What this does is to shut off that analytical prefrontal cortex and often the next thing I know I'm waking several hours later. In the same way that a lack of sleep negatively affects our fat loss, the excessive cortisol associated with chronic stress presents us with a stumbling block. It's well worth using a regular meditation practice to protect us both physically and mentally. I always struggled with any attempts to meditate until I came across Emily Fletcher's Ziva method. It's meditation for people who don't meditate and it's a life changer might also offer the suggestion that a great deal of stress can come from a preoccupation with global issues that are beyond our direct control. If I'm feeling overwhelmed, I try to shrink my world. I stop reading the news and focus on what's happening today to my family in our immediate bubble. By reducing the scope and the time frame that I'm allowing myself to worry about, life can suddenly seem a lot more manageable. I had planned for this to be the last part of the series, but in writing it, I discovered that I had so many tips and tricks to share with you that they required an episode all of their own. So next time we'll be talking about those little things that can make all the difference to our success. At this point, we've covered the big supporting pillars of our fat loss journey, removing processed food, increasing nutrient density, balancing hormones, resistance exercise, sleep and stress reduction. We've talked about low-carb diets and fasting. What now remains are the tips and tricks that we need to be aware of as we get underway. Little things that can make all the difference to our success. Not so little after all, then. As we remove processed food, we remove a significant source of hidden sodium from our diet. We've always been told to reduce the amount of salt we add to our food, but that's in the context of food that's already stuffed the gunnels with it. And if we then gravitate towards a low carb or particularly a ketogenic diet, we're going to start to waste sodium through our kidneys. The end result of all this is that we wind up lacking electrolytes, feeling terrible, weak and distorted, struggling to adapt to a low carb approach. And This is often termed the keto flu. We might need to add more salt than we think to our food, to add some salt to our drinking water or to use an electrolyte product to ensure that we get enough sodium. On the subject of adaption, some people find that the process of transitioning to a lower carb approach, one where they're relying more on their body fat, easier than others. In wired to eat Rob Wolf recommends a staggered approach whereby we first remove the worst offenders in our diet before gradually progressing to a lower level of carbohydrates over a few weeks. This is going to minimise any potential issues. As we established in part two, food has the potential to be addictive. And food products are engineered to be exactly that. So it should come as no surprise that some of us struggle to exclude them. The theory of moderators versus abstainers suggests that some of us, moderators, do better if we're allowed to keep some periodic dose of the bad stuff, where abstainers are better at drawing a line in the sand than never crossing it. To my mind, there's no room for moderation when it comes to hyperpalatable processed food. No room for cheap days or small portions that fit within our calorie allowance. Why? Because by continually reminding ourselves what these foods taste like, we inhibit our recalibration to the sweetness of whole, unprocessed foods. It's not that we can just eat fresh fruit and raw honey ad libitum, more on that later, but if we allow ourselves to adjust, we can enjoy those intense flavours just as we did Oreos and ice cream. Every time we bombard our taste buds with enhanced engineered sweetness, we unpick that recalibration. Furthermore, in my experience, most of us aren't genuinely able to moderate effectively. What begins as a modest dessert at the weekend slowly but surely drifts until we're having cake with our coffee every day. We have to remember that these foods are designed, and very successfully so, to be impossible to moderate. We're better off without them, and we need some strategies to help us hold the line. Now, before I go on, it's worth acknowledging that for some of us, it's every bit as hard to stop eating our favorite processed food products as quitting tobacco, alcohol, or drugs. We may need professional help to manage that process. Moving on with our strategies, firstly, don't keep the stuff lying around. If it isn't sitting right there in front of us, we're far less likely to pick it up and eat it. Our brain can sometimes trick us into having that little taste of something, just that corner of a cookie that's fallen off, or the swipe of a finger through the frosting on the edge of a cake platter. It's those lapses that seem to trigger hedonistic behaviour to obliterate our resolve, and before we know what we're doing, we're eating a piece. If instead we need to leave the house and actually buy something to shop for ingredients and bake. We need to make a far more conscious, deliberate decision. We buy ourselves time in which to make a better choice. I remember when I gave up smoking that when the cravings hit, if I could resist for 10 minutes, they would generally subside. Once we finished our meal, it pays to get out of the kitchen. If we hang around by the fridge, we're prolonging the queue to eat. By removing ourselves from that feeding location, we have to make a conscious decision to go back. If we're going to a social event, if we know that we're going to be confronted by these sorts of foods, we might choose to take some fresh fruit with us to give ourselves something to replace those more harmful options. We might ask our host if that's okay, not because there's any suggestion that it won't be, but because it makes us accountable. If we make this little unnecessary fuss, we will be less likely to then just give in later. It's perhaps less likely that our host will continually try to tempt us with the double chocolate fudge cake, but we do need to expect that too. For whatever reason, some people seem to take our dietary choices as a challenge, the breaking of our resolve as some sort of ultimate goal. Our abstinence makes people uncomfortable and we see this with alcohol as well as food. If we choose not to indulge, perhaps they feel that the implication is that they shouldn't. Expect resistance, anger even. Expect comments about everything in moderation. Expect to hear how their friend so-and-so lost weight eating ice cream or how they've read that low-carb diets are dangerous. Everyone has an opinion and it's usually one that involves you eating whatever they're eating. Speaking of accountability, we're likely to do better if we make ourselves part of a group or community who share our goals. If we can set out on this journey with a friend or family member, we may both be more successful. Rob Wolf's The Healthy Rebellion is a great example of an online community in which people both support and hold each other accountable as they make these positive changes. Now, where it gets a little more contentious is whether we remove hyperpalatable whole foods like dairy. When people are stalled, struggling to lose fat, excluding dairy products seems to come up again and again as the key that ultimately unlocks their fat loss. It's incredibly compulsive and there's always more of it. If we eat a steak, when it's gone, it's gone. And there's quite a barrier to eating more. We'd have to cook. But there's always another slice of cheese or butter in the fridge. And it's much easier to just have a little extra. And although it's highly nutritious, it's also very energy dense. Furthermore, it has an anabolic effect. Its sole purpose is to turn small mammals into big mammals and it's brilliant at doing that. I'm reticent to suggest that we immediately exclude such a significant source of nutrition, but it's worth a try if we're not getting the results we're after. In any event, we need to be extremely strict with portion control when it comes to dairy. We've also established that fructose has a hyperpalatable element to it. We're hardwired to overeat fruit. Ancestrally, we did fine with this because we had limited access to the stuff. It was seasonal. If we want to lose fat while eating a food that we ancestrally used specifically to gain it, we're going to need to retain some of that scarcity. Ideally, I think we'd mimic our ancestors' circannual rhythms and only eat the fruit that grows at our latitude at the time that it naturally ripens. But that's an unrealistic restriction for most people, and we probably just need to be a bit mindful of the frequency, quantity and type of fruit we're eating. We also need to remember that the fruit we evolved to eat was very much less sweet than the modern versions that we've modified and selectively bred to contain even higher quantities of sugar. For example, at Painton Zoo in the UK, keepers have stated that they can no longer feed the monkeys bananas. The modern version of the fruit is simply too sugary and the animals begin to suffer from tooth decay and diabetes. When I began to reintroduce plant foods, I was surprised to find that I tolerated fruit rather better than I'd expected. Far better than vegetables, in fact. I suppose it makes sense from the standpoint that the fruit is designed for animals to eat as part of that plant's reproductive strategy. It's not chemically defended like leaves, stems and seeds. Within the fruits I tried, I did far better with the local ones, apples, pears and berries, than with tropical fruits flown in from abroad. I do find it very difficult to moderate fruit, and I prefer to limit it to one day a week, but without having to hold back too much. That strategy is working very well at the moment. As we prepare meals, we routinely create hyperpalatable combinations of foods. If we sit down in front of a bowl of totally plain boiled potatoes or slices of dry toast, how much do we really eat? Not all that much unless we're genuinely hungry but if we add butter and especially if that butter is salted we suddenly find ourselves eating a great deal more. We're taking in more energy in every mouthful so logically we should eat less but we don't because that combination is giving us a greater dopamine response. We're no longer concerned with satiety, we're compulsively hitting that reward center in our brain. If we want our satiety signals to kick in we might need to reconsider what our meals look like we might need to accept some meals that consist solely of boiled eggs, a steak or a portion of fish. It's not just a question of reducing calories by leaving things off the plate. We're more likely to feel satisfied, ready to stop eating if we keep our meals simple. While the shape of our meals may change, we need to accept that those around us may not. We'll constantly be confronted with terrible options and challenged when we don't accept them. We need to be prepared for our food to stand out, to make us different. If we visit a restaurant and order a steak with no sides, it will always be assumed that we've made a mistake. Expect the waiter to come back to clarify. Expect there to be some sort of side dish added to the plate. You can say, I'd like the ribeye medium rare with absolutely nothing else. No sides, nothing else on the plate except for the steak. And the reply will come, would you like fries with that? For most of us, there's a bit of a delay between eating and feeling satisfied, receiving that signal to stop. During that gap, we can very easily overeat. Obviously, we can count calories initially, but it should really be our goal to move away from the weighing and measuring over time. An alternative strategy is to portion our food for storage and cook it in those single portions. We can allow ourselves to eat as long as we're still hungry, but there's an inherent barrier to doing so. We need to cook a second portion. We may even need to defrost one too. As we debate this, we're creating a little delay, which is going to give our satiety signalling time to kick in. This strategy allows us to deliberately ask, am I hungry enough to cook another steak? Or to boil a couple of eggs? Maybe. Maybe not. Perhaps we were just rather enjoying eating, Personally, if I'm left in front of a beef roasting joint, I can absent-mindedly snap my way through the whole thing, eating three times as much as I would have a portion food, before I start to realise that I've gone a bit too far and need to have a sit down. As we tune into our satiety, we can start to ask ourselves what we're really hungry for. There are actually five different kinds of hunger. Sometimes it's nutrients, we're thinking about lean meat or fish. Sometimes it's energy. We're drawn towards the butter, or the fattiest cuts of meat. Those types of hunger can feel quite different, and while we want to feed that nutrient hunger, we might choose to tolerate a little energy hunger as we try to lose fat. We leave just a little of that in place each day, maintaining our calorie deficit. I find energy hunger far easier to tolerate than nutrient hunger. It's surprising how we can learn to listen to and understand those signals. And we need to be mindful that we do listen, that we don't interrupt them. One way in which we commonly close our ears to the messages we're being sent is to distract ourselves as we eat. We scroll social media, or watch television. In doing so, we're no longer eating mindfully and we're at greater risk of overeating, only to realise half an hour later that we're too full. As we make these changes, we want to let our new habits forge a new identity. So much of our long-term success comes down to the ability to see ourselves in a different light. Instead of, I'm a person who struggles with my weight, who can't resist, who wakes up every day full of regret for what I ate yesterday, we reinvent ourselves. I am a person who only eats whole foods. I am a person who understands the food I eat. I know which foods trigger me and I avoid them. There are many things I can't control in my life, but I can control what I eat and nobody can take that away from me. I'm a person who lifts heavy weights. I'm stronger physically and mentally because of these things. As we lose fat, our calorie needs may change. Depending on how much muscle we build, how much fat we lose and what state our hormones and metabolism were in to start with, we may need to re-evaluate our intake hopefully we're going to find that we begin to do this intuitively without thinking about it we should also be aware that we might lose fat but gain weight muscle is heavy it could be that our scale weight goes up as we become leaner it's likely better not to weigh ourselves but to gauge our success by the way our clothes fit with a tape measure rather than a scale finally as we become very lean we do need to be aware that our body and indeed our mind may fight back We may get hungrier and our metabolic rate may slow. It's quite normal to cycle up and down around our ideal weight. We can't just keep losing fat forever and we have to adjust to eating at maintenance. So for the time being, that's it for my How Do We Lose Fat series. I'm going to go and record some interviews with guests from the worlds of research and clinical practice to bring some further clarification and insight to some of the things we've been discussing. If you're on a journey to lose fat, let me know how it's going. I'm on Instagram at Rustin's Boneyard, or you can leave a comment on my YouTube or website articles. That's it for now. Come and find me on Instagram at Rustin's Boneyard and at www.rustinsboneyard.com. Keep cooking.